0: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Jack Farley. It's Friday, May 1st. We've got Ral and Ash standing by. But first, let's go over the biggest story of the day. Oil producers continue to feel the heat. ExxonMobil today reported its first quarterly loss in 32 years, and it froze its dividend for the first time in 13 years. Meanwhile, Royal Dutch Shell cut its dividend for the first time since World War II. It's a reminder that... Even if the long squeeze in oil is over, the pain for oil producers is only just beginning. The futures are showing that order has been restored to the market with Western Texas Intermediate hovering at just above $19. And a look at the implied vol for WTI shows that volatility is being tamed compared to a week ago. The bottom line is that for most drillers, WTI at $19 is simply uneconomic. And the futures curve doesn't contain much hope If the curve is correct, for many producers, drilling oil won't be profitable for at least five years. In response, producers are cutting supply drastically in order to staunch the cash bleed. Chevron today announces cutting 10% of its supply over the next three months. That's a quarter of a million barrels per oil a day. Meanwhile, ConocoPhillips today set the target to cut supply by 19% for May and 33% by June. And lastly, Continental Resources shut down all of its shale operations in North Dakota these attempts to cut supply are already materializing in the numbers if you look at the chart of u.s production from the department of energy now this seems hopeful but if you look at a chart comparing the supply to the demand you'll see that demand is far more inelastic and nimble than supply demand went off a cliff but supply is much more delicate it's not like a light switch many of these wells are going to take years to shut off one example is the baker hughes rig count that came out today It went down, but not nearly as much as one would have thought, given the cataclysmic dovetailing that we've seen over the past month. That's because not all producers have the luxury of turning off their wells. Regardless, the oil industry is dealing with challenges the likes of which we've never seen before. It'll be interesting to see how oil producers deal with these problems going forward. Analysts say that the near-term focus is gonna be on low-cost production and shoring up that balance sheet. But at the end of the day, Producer's success is ultimately at the mercy of a market, which will be oversupplied for the near future. And to make sense of all of this and more, we have Ash Bennington and Real Vision's fearless CEO, Ral Powell.
2: Guys, how's it going? Thanks, Jack. It's Friday, May first, two thousand twenty. Just after close of markets here in New York, I'm Ash Bennington for Real Vision. This is the Daily Briefing. Welcome, Ral. How are you doing? I'm oh, good, thank you. No complaints. So, Raoul, another week grinding forward after the crisis, Uh, some continued bad data, continued volatility in markets. What are you looking at?
1: I'm looking at a number of things. Um, You know, It's hard in a market like this to find the signal amongst the noise. And I'm spending my time really trying to focus on that. As I've talked about in the past, one thing we know is the data is terrible. And it's only going to get worse for a while. The market wants to look through that, which, again, we've talked about. But interesting, we get to month end, and markets ramp up as people allocate capital to month end, suddenly month end goes, and the markets have been down pretty sharply on the back of that. So that's been an interesting thing, because many of us are, suggest- are still thinking through the dichotomy between the narrative that's going on in the markets and the reality on the ground. And- and the probabilities that could come out of this in terms of solvency events or shutdowns again and stuff like that. So, I'm I'm focused on that a lot. I'm focused on China. I think it was fascinating Trump yesterday ratcheting up the trade war again with China and looking for the scapegoat from China for the virus, which we've heard elsewhere echoed. And the talk of tariffs and the first thing that's happening, China's actually closed today, but CNH, the offshore yuan, starts weakening significantly. And should that break 720, I mean, I think we're in for a huge move. And the yuan will be a big deal for currency markets. As you know, I'm waiting for the next big move in the dollar, which I think comes higher. So, I'm focused very much on that. I'm also spending time thinking through my narrative of solvency, and seeing J. Crew, mm-hmm. um, and knowing that we're going to have a wave of this that aren't going to be bailed out by the Fed. There's a narrative that everybody's going to get bailed out, but over time, it's just not going to be sustainable for people to stay in business. So, I'm, I'm I'm following that story. I'm also following the story of Europe, and I'm just doing some work for Global Macro Investor right now about the size of the increases of. Uh, Deficits as a percentage of GDP that's about to come across Europe, and it's about 20% per country. Mm -hmm. There is no money for this. There's no way. And Europe is stuck trying to figure this out, how they're going to do this. Meanwhile, when I pull up the chart of the IBEX, the monthly chart going back to 1987, it's one of the biggest head and shoulders top patterns I've ever seen in a stock market. I'm like, huh, is there something really big going to happen here. I'm also thinking through about the dollar. What happens to a currency markets when there's no trade going on? You would imagine the major currencies should be a bit sloppy because something's really happening. But as countries start reopening, what does that do for the demand for dollars? My guess is they go through the roof. But dollar incomes, i.e. commodities sold, have gone through the floor. So, I have a feeling that the reopening may change the dollar dynamic. So, I'm looking at all of these things right now. They're all kind of stories that lie ahead and kind of ignoring really what's going on day to day. The other thing that you are obviously looking at as well is Bitcoin and the halving. Yes. So, there's a, there's a big shopping list of things I've got my eye on.
2: Yeah, you know, and it's so interesting, Raoul. You effectively map out all of the different categories that we're looking at and trying to weigh and understand and analyze them all simultaneously. You have the macroeconomic picture, you have the technical positioning factors, we have some of the fiscal deficits, we've got currency issues. It is an entire map of things that we're looking at. And I think that one of the things that we do at Real Vision, as you suggested, is while the news is looking backward at things that have happened, we're doing the analysis and looking forward and trying to to understand what is going to happen. And you know, none of us has a crystal ball, of course. Um, but if we're able to provide a framework and insight to give people the tools they need to
1: figure out what's important, what to look at, that's a pretty significant advantage. Yeah, I mean, look, for example, the interview today with Hugh Hendry that's on the platform I mean that's a fantastic. I, mean, I really enjoyed it because I love Hugh. Right, he's a real character, and he's a he, he's also living like a pirate in the Caribbean as I am. Yes. Um, different islands, but <laughs> but Hugh and I talked through. Okay, we've got two slightly different views. At core, we've got a similar view, and then together we kind of constructed what a portfolio could look like to take into account both of our views and still make money, looking mm-hmm. into the future. And yeah, that was a very real vision moment because yeah. it was kind of a conversation people don't normally get to drop into, but also it shows how thinking ahead is where you make all the money.
2: Right. He was terrific and an incredibly iconoclastic thinker, and you're not going to get that sense if you just see a five or ten minute interview with him. No, no, never, never. It's part of the magic of Real Vision, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, to pick up on some of the points that you made about some of the things that we're looking at and analyzing. So obviously, um, we've seen some really dismal uh, job numbers here. You know, last week uh, filings hit 3.8 million, uh, worse than the estimate, but below the worst week so far. You know, one of the things that we were talking about is providing the broader context and to give a sense of what this means and and the. The bigger picture and the bigger story. So, we've had now 30 million unemployment claims over the last six weeks. And what does that mean? How big is that? Well, to put it in context, since the end of the great financial crisis, we've created 22.4 million jobs. So, we've just lost more jobs in the last six weeks than we did uh, create in the last decade or more effectively. Uh, And the total jobs lost during the great financial crisis, a total of 8.7 million jobs lost. So what we're seeing
1: now is uh, significantly larger than that. The question is, is the market is saying, well, they're not really lost. They're yeah. in the deep freeze. Now what we need to do is try and figure out, OK, how many of them really are lost? So if the Great Recession was 8 million, maybe we've lost 15 million jobs here maybe 15 come back to work. That's the kind of understanding that's going to make us money out of this and also help us understand the situation and what it means for all of us personally. But I just do not see a world where there's enough cash flow to rehire everybody again and presume everything is okay. And that is what the market is trying to price in right now. And I just think it's wrong.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, the market is uh, down from last week's close close of trading for the week, zero point two percent on the S and P uh, to close down at the twenty eight thirty one level. So it's effectively flat on the week. And if we take the camera and we pull it back a little bit, we've lost sixteen point four percent on the S and P from the all time high. You know, so I guess the question is, uh, and I ask sort of cynically, right? Is is this just an ordinary vanilla correction? Well. Probably not. And the market is pricing it as though it were one. So, that- yes.
1: And and so, I spent, uh, again, I'm writing GMI, so I've got a lot of things in my head right now. One of the things I went back is looked at all of the market tops and the, the corrections that came in uh, 2001, in uh, 2008, in uh, 1929, and the Nikkei 1990. They're right. all the classic- Top patterns, and they all look very similar in certain ways. What was interesting is every one of them retraced fifty percent, maybe just over fifty percent. We're now at the sixty-one point eight percent retracement. If you stick on some sort of kind of weekly moving averages, they all kind of got to the same kind of levels. You're not looking for a magic point in the line in the sand. You're, You're looking for texture and context. And what was really interesting and this is a bit of a sneak preview into some of GMI, is that the Nikkei 2008 and 2001 all hit their their low in March, all bounced to June. And then they all reversed in June and went down Mm -hmm. like a stone. And that's the only one that didn't do that was 1929. because that was slightly different. It was a longer one. So I just look at that and think, that's interesting, the texture, the size of the bounce, and the months as well. So I'm kind of thinking that, you know what, it would make sense for the markets to top out in June in line with how all of these other patterns have. And why that happens, I've no idea. But I remember it well from 2008, is June was after the Lehman thing, Mm -hmm. and everybody thought it was okay. and the worst was out. And then they realized that was just the start. And I think we're probably going through the similar investor psychology that's you know, rinse and repeat.
2: Right. And that's exactly the kind of texture that we think about and that we look at. Um, you know, to pick up on your earlier point about, um, about how this affects uh, individuals in the economy, you know, so, so a couple of points, and I've been doing a little bit of research in this to try and get that broader analysis, that broader picture. Um, you know, two-thirds of the American economy is consumer consumption. Right. I mean, if you if you if you just sort of watch, uh, you know, mergers and acquisition news, you could believe that uh, corporate actions, business to business transactions, are the bulk of it. It's simply not. It's two thirds is individual consumption, um, and one of the things that's really interesting is what's happening in. Uh, with rents and mortgages right now. Uh, And we may be at the tip of the spear here in New York. It may be exacerbating things because we are in the worst place for the lockdowns. We're seeing some really interesting things. Um, April rent payments were actually better than expected, Um, mostly because the job market had not yet crashed in March because the lockdown had not become quite so significant as it is now. Um, But what we're looking at now Is some really interesting and really frightening, frankly, warning signs that are on the horizon for May rents. There are surveys out that are suggesting that significant numbers of people uh, are going to have challenges paying their rent. There's one survey out uh, from a group called Kingsley Associates uh, that uh, does listings for the website apartments.com that found barely half of renters were confident that they were going to be able to pay May rent. Uh, nearly seventy percent said they had paid their April rent. So again, you can see this delta from the past. And a really interesting fact that I was looking at, I went up on the BLS website uh, this morning and was reading through some of the uh, some of the data. So Americans, uh, on average, spend about seventy seven percent of their pre tax income. And when you look at post tax income, obviously it's lower, suggesting they're not saving a whole lot. And we're very close to the margin of danger. 33 cents on the dollar of U.S. consumer expenditure is on housing. So, it's rent, mortgage, and utilities payments. This is a substantial place where the U.S. economy can be hit. And there are also significant feed-throughs. Obviously, landlords uh, have payments that they need to make to banks. There's the risk of defaults. There's the risk of problems pushing through into the banking sector. So, again, while none of us have a crystal ball, this is something that I think is really important to look at to gauge the magnitude of the crisis and understand where we're
1: going next. Yeah. So, for example, here in Cayman and similar elsewhere in the world, the banks have given us a um, a mortgage holiday, Mm. so three months. Right. This is the bet that the governments are taking. Everybody's taking the bet, which is, can we paper over the cracks for three months, four months? And will that be enough? Now, the question is, is what happens if, to go back to your previous point, that that 30 million unemployed is actually realistically 20 million or 15 million? Right. And those people suddenly can't pay their rent. And after four, five months, well, the government's not going to keep bailing out everybody. And at some point, somebody has to the piper has to get paid. And again, this is the issue I, I relentlessly talk about is the Solvency event that I, I really fear. I don't see, barring a miracle, that not happening. And as you said, New York is particularly bad because it's already overbuilt. They built far too much in Manhattan. That was too expensive. They didn't manage to sell it. I mean, Hudson Yards is, is enormous, and that's only part of what was built in New York. So suddenly, and a bunch of shops and restaurants are going close, so it's not only, it's not only renters in terms of households it's renters in terms of small businesses i mean that is a huge shock to manhattan obviously over time manhattan will be fine but i've seen these kind of property cycles before and these can get really ugly for a period of time because there's a lot of leverage in that system you know as we know from your dear president it's all about leverage in that business <laughs>
2: Yes, uh, those are such good points. And that's exactly where the threads cross, isn't it? It's uh, the solvency issues meeting the employment issues, which, again, comes back to the question of when we're going to reopen the economy. If we look... Uh, it's what has, what's happening here in the United States, it's very much a mishmash. You see states with very different policies. Um, obviously, their states have very different infection rates. They have very different implicit damage to the economy, very different things like population density. But it is not a standard homogenized whole. There are a lot of moving parts that we're looking at. There's supply chain issues, obviously, across states with interstate commerce. Uh, and this is a real challenge. You know, my, my source is... Uh, in, uh, and close to the administration uh, are telling me off the record, uh, even they're even more adamant about attempting to reopen the economy sooner rather than later uh, than what you're reading, uh, I think, in the newspaper. So, this is something that there's a tremendous push to do. I guess the question is, will the reality on the ground push back against
1: it? So, there is a, and I'm giving away a bit of a secret here, but there is a unbelievable website, which is TomTom. Tom. So, TomTom Tom is the GPS navigation business. And on that website, you can go and look at any city in the world, the last seven days traffic versus the average over the previous year, mm-hmm. anywhere. So, I know how much Atlanta is down currently, even though it's reopened. I also know that Shanghai on the weekends is down 80% mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. this average. But in peak rush hours, everyone's going to work and coming back. In the middle of the day, they're not driving around. So, there's (laughs) a reopening. And again, I've been on and on about this human behavior. People don't want to risk it. So they change their behavior. So there is no way in that traffic data that consumption is coming back in the way that people think. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating, you can get to any city. So again, I'm doing, I'm I'm probably going to build some indices for it for GMI. So we can look at the early cities. That shut down and reopened. You can look at Wuhan. It shows you exactly how Wuhan has reopened. And I'm telling you, there is an enormous hole. By the way, if anybody goes to it, have a look at Singapore. There is, its traffic is down like 99% in Singapore. It's a total shutdown. It's the biggest I've seen. It's bigger than Milan and Madrid. Unbelievable. So, anyway.
2: That's so interesting because these are the success stories, and yet we're still seeing, and in
1: that in, in the implicit. But that's my point is there is no success in this game reopening is a mirage because there's so many factors at play opens and reshutdowns the human psychological scarring, fear um, and what is and the actual commercial opportunity to put people back to work because China put people back into factories to do what to sell product to who You know, wait to see the inventory data coming out of China, because they've just built products for nobody, because nobody else is buying anything. So, again, this whole thing, I mean, I I appeared on Fox hilariously uh, this week, and I got a two-minute (laughs) soundbite, of which I was listening to them talking. It was on um, um, Barney's show. And I was hearing... Uh, Them talking before I came on air, and it was all about open the doors, open the shut, get rid of the shutdowns. We're going back to work. The market's going to all time highs, and we're going to power back as an economy. Well, the data suggests that that ain't the case.
2: Well, listen, if you only have two minutes, there's not a whole lot of depth you can get into, right? And that's thankfully that's why there's a real vision. (laughs) Exactly right. Great, a great need for it. you know, picking up on two other stories that I thought were kind of interesting. Um, so, so there was an interesting story about uh, Amazon earnings that came out after the bell. Um yesterday that, effectively, Jeff, uh, Jeff Bezos said uh, it's estimating $4 billion in profit for Q2 2020, but they're effectively warning they're, go- they're going to spend or invest all of that uh, back in the business to basically increase their supply chains, increase efficiency. And the quote was, under normal circumstances, in this coming Q2, we'd expect to make some $4 billion, but these are not normal circumstances. Very interesting. Uh, Mr. Bezos told investors
1: to take a seat. So I... I've been thinking about Amazon, and we've been thinking about it as a tech company. and We think about it in, in, in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of talk about it. But I used to look at the Sunday Times Rich List in the UK. And that Rich List was always interesting because you'd see the sources of wealth. And some industries go up and down. Commodity guys obviously get cyclical. A bunch of Russians come in, they're billionaires. They all, you know, the commodity markets collapse, they all come out. You Buy know. a football team and leave. Yeah. And then you see the tech guys come in and, you know, whatever it is, right? There's a bunch of these guys that are kind of cyclical in nature. But there's two guys, two groups of guys who are basically always in the top 10. One is the property owners, mm. the big property owners. And some of those are cyclical, but some of them really aren't. But the ones the least cyclical of all are the supermarket owners, the retailers, the big supermarket, everyday good retailers, enormous wealth. Go to Germany, look at those retailers, France, the UK, and the US. And basically, what Amazon is doing is reinvesting its money to take over the worlds of retailing and they're just the world's biggest retailer forget everything else they're the world's biggest retailer yes they've got the aws business but they're just eating everybody by reinvesting all of their profits and taking market share i mean yes i mean of course the world's largest retailer has created the world's richest man of course and it will remain so that but that mantle's not going and nobody's going to break up a supermarket, essentially, which Amazon is. So, they don't run the same risk that Google and Facebook run. So, Bezos is kind of home and dry. Right. Absolutely.
2: You know, it's interesting, Google and Facebook, um, we, we think of them as these incredibly sophisticated technology companies, and they are that, and they do great engineering work. But at base, it's really advertising dollars. That's
1: their business. They're media platforms. And they're, all of their revenue is advertising. Mm. So, Google Spins a lovely story. Yes, it has, as you say, great tech. But basically, they couldn't make a penny until they figured out how to capture the advertising market. And in this market, I don't understand how Google is not collapsing because guess what? Ad revenues are going to be down 50, 60, 70% at some point, which I've been saying for a long time. And Facebook's the same. And then you kind of reveal the emperor's got no clothes. But that battle is, again, another story that Real Vision always talks about is the battle of, of the passive investors piling money into the same names without realizing it. So there's the reality on the ground. And then there's the passive investment battle on the other side. And that goes back to the, your story of unemployment. Yes. You see young people who are the passive buyers, the millennials, stay unemployed for long. They stop paying their 401k, and the passive money dries up. And then you're going to see a change of leadership very fast. It's
2: also interesting how these stories intersect. Um, and when you when you take the time to unpack them, to unwind the thread, they all do seem to cross at different points. You know, another story that would seem on the surface to be unrelated, but ties in exactly to the point that you just made. Um, uh, Mr. Bezos has been summoned uh, before Congress, before the House Judiciary Committee, uh, to discuss allegations that Amazon employees were effectively using their position uh, as the world's largest retailer to uh, analyze supply chains and to reverse-engineer products that were being sold by other retailers and make cheaper,
1: better, easier. And why would they not? You have? They, they're a supermarket that owns all the data. I mean, I mean that, that's unbeatable. I mean, you might as well go home if you think you can compete with them. I mean, th- there's no chance. Now, can they get sued a few times for malpractice? Probably. But again, nobody's going to break up. Amazon, because in the end, we all get what we want. There is no movement from us as individuals to say, bring Amazon down. They're destroying our society. Like, no, no, please, you deliver it in 24 hours to my doorstep of any good that I want. I want and, and you're actually probably lowering prices on average everywhere. So, well, Google and Facebook, that's different.
2: Yeah. And, and to that point, also, the, the argument will be made. Would you rather have uh, Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon do it? Or would you prefer it be Tencent? making these innovations, right? I mean, is there?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story when we're talking about China and their use of data. And yes. that's another story that weaves into all of this, where we started off in the beginning of this journey you and I have been going through is China and tariffs and the issue of of um, how China has probably misrepresented itself in certain ways. You know, the Chinese companies that have been listed in in the US and how they're under different regulatory uh, um, requirements than US companies, and then where the state can go when it's given all the data. So, th- that's another big theme that's in the background that's kind of chewing away and has now got to the forefront of the of the administration, but not only the administration, but also both sides of the house. I mean, almost everybody agrees that China is a problem. And that's that's a big factor that's going to be The next few years for us, we're going to be figuring this out, which is one of the reasons, again, to go back to another one of our points the dollar RMB or the CNH or the yuan probably ends up trading eight or nine or 10 in this because there's a lot of debt. I mean, that's the other thing that Trump talks about just getting rid of all that, the dollar credit to China. I mean, Christ, where's the currency going? What would that do? I mean, these things are astonishing. These are not normal times, as you rightly said before. True, truly are. Truly are. The, the
2: overlap between the technological issues, the issues of battling the virus, uh, and the economic and trade issues really are significant. And, you know, that, that brings me back to the interview that we aired yesterday with Balaji mm-hmm. uh, who which was just absolutely killer.
1: Yeah, and I was he- annoyed that you got that interview, and I didn't. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> well, you know, we got we we you know, this is gr- this is a great real vision interview because if you really want to understand the depth of Silicon Valley's thinking about the world, how they think of governance, how they think about battling this disease, how they think about the competitive relationship with the rest of the world in technology, especially vis-a-vis China. This interview is is really must-see.
1: Yeah, I mean I loved it. I mean I watched it last night with a glass of wine and it's just I really enjoy the Battle of West Coast thinking versus East Coast thinking. Um, I find it refreshing, a uh, different and unique look at the world. It's like it's wide-eyed optimism, fixed firmly on the horizon, but with a cynical eye to everything that's been built. Mm. and it's it's fascinating. it's it's destruct it's creative destruction. Uh, is what is what the West Coast thinking is. yeah. Um, and I, I just, I find how they solve problems. I love the way that he just basically took a Silicon Valley product mindset using a funnel, a sale, like, you know, w- right. we all understand. And he applied it to the virus. Here's the parts of the funnel. This is how it's done. This is how we would think about it. If this was just a customer acquisition problem or a whatever problem, I'm like, that, that's clever. It was clever, and I know some people might say it's you know it's kind of demeaning to the the, the problem at hand. It's not. It's a Great. thought. It's a thought process, and it's and it's very clever in Silicon Valley. Whether you like that mentality or not, it's proven time and time again. that These guys are geniuses.
2: Yeah, that's right. And they have the ability to execute. I mean, you know, biology's got more science degrees from Stanford than a thermometer, and it's looking at this issue and applying some of that intelligence to it and the ability to execute, the ability to think things through. And so, you know, I, you may think of a product funnel that may seem trivializing, but no, absolutely not. This is just about thinking through various steps, various hops, various pieces of
1: the progression. So, are we going to go there? Are we going to talk about Elon Musk? Talking of Silicon Valley, how, how can we not?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: you first, Rao, Please tell me what your thoughts I mean, are. What on earth is going on? He's now tweeting that the <laughs> that the stock is overpriced. It's down ten point three percent as of the close. Mm-hmm. He's saying he's going to now divest himself of all of his worldly <laughs> goods. <laughs> and then there's a whole barrage of stuff with him in caps lock shouting freedom i mean yeah. it's like what acid is he on well i've never seen anything like this guy i mean somebody said somebody's on twitter today they just said and tagging him said i'm just hoping michael lewis is taking good notes because this is <laughs> one hell of a story <laughs> That
2: would be a blockbuster movie, wouldn't it? Well, look, he's he's never he's never boring, uh, and um, you know, to, to his to his fans, this is uh, this is great. This is creative destruction, as you said. This is the classic uh, breaking the paradigms. And, yeah, but and he's
1: breaking his own paradigm here with himself. I mean, I, I don't really understand what he's doing in this kind of barrage of tweets, but it's highly amusing. Yes, and as many people on Twitter say, I can't believe Twitter's free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course, to the Tesla
2: Qs, he's a loose cannon. This is further evidence, right? This is their, this is the bear case they've been building for years.
1: Yeah. So there's two sides of Silicon Valley. There's Elon, who seems to have two sides of himself, <laughs> and there's Balaji, who's you know one of the thoughtful people. but I just thought a great juxtaposition.
2: Well, you know, one of the interesting things about the two sides of the show, I mean, for me, the big takeaway that I had uh, listening to this was that. Um, the difference between the political parties in the United States, right, the the typical left-right divide that we hear so much about, the partisan food fight that we watch happening down in Washington, the difference between where apology is coming from and the narrow disagreements that these guys have, the framework that they have that they're disagreeing with, is
1: extraordinary. He's on a well, totally different page. Well, D. Smith has talked a lot about this as well. When I sat down with D. recently on Real Vision, he talks about these guys are all basically arguing about the past the left and the right both want to return to the past because there's too much change going on too fast. Because basically, both parties are still baby boomers. It, look, you know, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. I mean, really? <laughs> but change is going to come outside of that. That's basically what Silicon Valley also says. I mean, that whole thing is backward looking. And I just think, as Dee talked about, going forwards, the changes of what we can see from our structure of societies and the supranational structures and everything else could well change out of this whole COVID recession, depression, because everything's up for grabs here, I think. Yeah.
2: And while that's happening, let's
1: keep doing the interviews that you want to have a glass of wine and watch on the couch at the end of the day. Yeah. The Hugh Henry one, if people haven't watched it this weekend, that is definitely a glass of wine, or maybe a stiff rum. (laughs) In keeping with the island theme. Exactly right. (laughs)
2: Rao, anything else that you're thinking about that you want to cover before we sign off? I think we've
1: covered the entire world three times over there. So, (laughs) Not bad for half an hour, right? Exactly right. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm writing Global Macro Investor this weekend. So I'll have a few more thoughts once I kind of get my chance away from the market, away from Real Vision, and just sit down and write and think. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks a lot, Ash. Have a great weekend, everyone.